Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you what I thought was going to be the final episode of this mini-series, but I thought wrong, and due to time constraints, there will be just one more after this. This is the third episode of the case of Maricela Bateo Valadez in Dallas, Texas. Let's get right to it, because we're coming in hot today. Last week, we went over the symphony of a shit show that led up to the trial of Lisa Joe Dykes. A little refresher. The lead detective over Maricela's case, Christine Ramirez, failed to turn over, or actually deleted, evidence related to Maricela's case. Amber Givens, the presiding judge, was in hot water after her court coordinator stood in for her during a bond hearing on a different case, while according to the Texas Observer, Givens was on the phone sorting out the repossession of her Cadillac. Givens was removed from the case at the request of the prosecution. Originally, Nina Murano was supposed to be on trial facing a murder charge first. But due to all the nonsense going on in the judicial system, her trial was delayed. Maybe now's a good time for another real quick refresher. Dykes was Charles Beltran's main sugar mama, the one funding his rap career. Nina Murano was Dyke's longtime friend that she later married after Murano's husband Bill died. When Murano and Dykes married, Charles Beltran was already in the picture. Dykes, Murano, and Beltran were all facing a murder charge. But as I said last week, when it was all said and done, murder charges were dropped against everyone. Well, everyone except Lisa Jo Dykes. The charges hadn't been dropped just yet, but it was just around the corner. By the time the trial began, all love between Beltran and Dykes was lost, and they were pointing the finger at each other. On Monday, December 5, 2023, Dykes' trial began in a Dallas County courtroom with Judge Nancy Mulder presiding. In opening statements, Prosecutor Robin Pittman held up a photo of Maricela as she addressed the jury, stating, We are here about Maricela Bateo Valadez. She went on to explain that Maricela was a beautiful 23-year-old woman who came to Dallas to visit a friend and never made it back to her home in Seattle. Prosecutor Pittman told the jury that Maricela had never even met the woman who had callously murdered her. But she had met Charles Beltran, and Charles Beltran was the person Lisa Dykes was obsessed with. As we know, Dykes had met Beltran through her son, who was managing a bar he worked security at. From the moment Dykes met him, she gave him a life he could have only dreamed of, with fancy dinners and a home she built a studio in just for him. She bought his clothes, his shoes, funded music videos, and bought him a car. When Lisa decided to marry her longtime friend Nina Murano after the death of Nina's husband, it was always understood that Beltran would be part of the relationship. And in the beginning, Beltran was free to have relationships with other women. 
He often brought them home to the house he shared with Lisa. But as time passed, Lisa began getting jealous. She was 57, and they were young and beautiful. Dykes tried to keep up. Her wife Nina paid for her to get plastic surgery. She began getting tattoos, hung out at the bars, but she just couldn't compete. And Beltran repeatedly ditched Lisa and Nina to spend time with younger women. All while Dykes and Murano paid for anything and everything he ever wanted. In fact, just before Maricela was murdered, Dykes had paid for Beltran and his entourage to perform at a gig in Camden, Arkansas. But as soon as they got back to Texas, Beltran was back out on the party scene in Deep Ellum. Beltran was standing on the sidewalk outside a bar with his friend Dax when Maricela walked by. The two caught each other's eye and soon they were chatting it up outside the bar. They left together and Beltran took Maricela back to the home he shared with Dykes and Murano. They hung out in Beltran's bedroom and eventually they both fell asleep. In the early morning hours of October 5th, Lisa Dykes entered Beltran's bedroom and began stabbing Maricela with a knife as she slept. The movement and noise woke Beltran up and he pushed Dykes off of Maricela, but the damage was done. Maricela lie there motionless. Like the coward he is, Beltran did nothing to help her and instead left the home on Kensington Drive. Cell phone records placed him back out in Deep Ellum. That evening, Dykes and Murano's phones put them near the location Maricela's body was later recovered. After Dykes was contacted by the FBI on October 15th, all three of them went on the run to Pennsylvania, Mexico, New Orleans, New Mexico, Florida, and Utah. Sometimes all together, and at other times, Beltran was hiding out with other women he had relationships with. Even after their arrest, Murano and Dykes continued to run. Prosecutor Pittman concluded by conceding that much of the information about what happened in that house that night came from Charles Beltran. But in order to find Dykes guilty, she wasn't asking the jury to believe his testimony alone. His story was only one piece of the puzzle, and it was corroborated by evidence and other witness testimony. With all the other pieces, according to the prosecutor, Beltran's story fit. She went on to explain that the jury didn't need to like Beltran to believe him, which is a damn good thing because Beltran's record along with the actions he took in this case aren't likable in the slightest. But the point she was getting at, and these are my words, not hers, but the point she was making was that two things could be true. Charles Beltran was a douchebag and Lisa Dykes was guilty of murder. The defense opening was up next, and if you thought Beltran was unlikable, Dyke's defense attorney Heath Harris gave him a run for his money. Or at least that's how I feel about it. Harris began by attacking the investigation done by lead detective Christine Ramirez. And that was understandable. It was a shit investigation. I don't think anyone would deny that, and it made a strong argument for his client. But he didn't stop there. Instead, Harris took it to a place it never should have gone. As he narrated the story about Beltran meeting Maricela that night in Deep Ellum, he went on a rant about how Maricela had been drinking earlier with Raul. And then attorney Heath Harris stated, and I quote, Now again, you'll see how Maricela was dressed. And all the things I'm saying, I'm not here to try to say anything negative about her personally, I'm just giving you the facts. You'll see how she was dressed. Now, I know a lot of words, but I can't seem to string them together to make a thought right now. You'll see how she was dressed? It's 2024 and we're still here doing this. 
Not that it matters in the slightest, but for the record, Maricela looked stunning. If that didn't piss you off enough, Harris went on to accuse her of using drugs. The attorney asked the jury to discredit absolutely everything Beltran was going to testify to, except one thing. When he and Maricela met that night in Deep Ellum, according to Beltran's later testimony, Maricela asked him if he knew where she could find some weed. Not meth, not heroin, not crack, weed. She asked him where to find some weed. Weed, which was completely legal for recreational use in her home state of Washington and many other states but not so much in Texas. Though medical marijuana is legal, recreational use is not. But who the hell was on trial here? Harris went on to claim that Maricela asked Beltran for weed, but ended up getting so much more, insinuating that she had used heavy drugs. Spoiler alert, there is no evidence that Maricela did drugs at any point in her life or that Beltran gave her anything other than marijuana. But that didn't stop the defense from diving off the deep end, suggesting that Maricela could have been, quote, tweaking, and that Dallas police were checking all the drug hotels in the area looking for her after she went missing. Must have been a reason they were doing that, right? And there was. There were several suspected sightings of Maricela, but they were checked out, and it turned out not to be her. After the defense was done blaming the victim, Harris shifted his attention to Beltran and his relationship with Dykes. The defense counsel claimed Lisa Dykes wasn't jealous of the other women Beltran brought around. Why would she be because she was only investing in his rap career? Or maybe, just maybe, there was something going on on the side too. He went on to say, Was there some twisted, what do you call it, love triangle between them? Yes, yes, but you're talking about Chuck Gorgeous. So was it a twisted love triangle or was Dykes investing in Beltran's rap career? Harris didn't seem to draw a hard line. He might have should have checked with his client before saying that because that would not be the same story Lisa Dykes told on the stand. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Harris pointed the finger at Christina Ramirez and the botched investigation. Charles Beltran, the Dallas police, unknown people that he claimed Beltran must have brought over that night, and Maricela herself, at one point saying that Maricela could have been tweaking and overdosed. Some New Year's resolutions are destined to fail, like almost every single one I try to make, especially if it has anything to do with getting organized. But lucky for me and you, I have an easy resolution that we can all make, and it will make your life easier, be kinder to our planet, and transform the way you do laundry in 2024. Switching to Earth Breeze. I know what you're thinking. Laundry isn't very fun. Lugging around a huge heavy plastic jug and trying to measure it without making a huge mess is annoying and completely inconvenient. Thankfully, EarthBreeze has heard our cries, and now EcoSheets are here to change the game. Unlike liquid powder or capsule detergent, EarthBreeze looks like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated laundry detergent. This little white sheet of magic couldn't make laundry any easier. Just throw a sheet in with your clothes and watch it dissolve in any wash cycle, hot or cold. No measuring, no mess, and best of all, no wasteful plastic jug. And you still get a powerful clean. 
Earth Breeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out of detergent again, thanks to Earth Breeze's flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. You'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe, and shipping is always free. Eco Sheets are packaged in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. Switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but also easier on the planet. EarthBreeze has planted over 150,000 trees and donated over 100 million loads of laundry and counting to those in need. It's a company you can feel good supporting. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know that it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Right now, my listeners can get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash least. That's earthbreeze.com slash least for 40% off your subscription. Defense attorneys have a job to do, but many, myself included, believe that Harris crossed a line with the way he spoke about Maricela when he had absolutely nothing to back it up. Throughout all of the testimony, no one besides Harris ever hinted that Maricela was a strung-out tweaker. Absolutely no one. It was quite the opposite. Frankly, the way Harris attempted to trash the victim in this case was utter bullshit. There ain't no other way to put it. After opening statements, the prosecution began to present its case, starting with Maricela's mother, Ernestina, who testified about who her daughter truly was, how she was their firstborn, hardworking and responsible. She told the jury that Maricela loved to travel and was so excited about her trip to Dallas. Ernestina doesn't speak English, so accommodations for a translator were made. You'd think that a translator might take some of the emotion out of the testimony, but the grief of a mother is universal. As her mom began to talk about the last time she saw her daughter, you could literally feel her heart break on the stand. Ernestina went on to testify about how her family had searched after Maricela first went missing, and how they weren't initially taken seriously by police, and how devastated she was to learn that her beautiful daughter had been murdered. Multiple investigators and forensic experts testified about the discovery of Maricela's body. Their testimony revealed that Maricela's death had been ruled due to homicidal violence, but the medical examiner nor a forensic anthropologist had found any signs of trauma on the bones recovered. Her body had just been left out there in the elements, and at the point she was found, her remains were skeletonized, and the bones had been scattered, likely due to animal activity. There was no soft tissue left, and not all of her remains were located, so they couldn't determine exactly where or how she had been injured. But medical examiner Dr. Elizabeth Ventura testified that she was confident in her finding that Maricela's death had been caused by homicidal violence. Other investigators testified about the blood in the house, the cell phone pings, and the location Maricela had been found in being minutes away from a property Lisa Dykes was very familiar with because she had lived there. And that was about it when it came to what most people would consider hard evidence. There was no smoking gun, no murder weapon, no one piece of evidence waving like a giant red flag that Lisa Dykes was the one who had murdered Maricela. 
In fact, the cell phone records showed all three of them at the Kensington house at the time the prosecution believed Maricela was murdered. Aside from Beltran's story, how were prosecutors so sure Dykes was the one who had carried out the murder? You see, what the prosecution lacked in the way of physical evidence, they made up for with droves of circumstantial evidence. Circumstantial evidence gets a bad rap sometimes, but many a case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt solely based on circumstantial evidence. And as a matter of fact, most of them are. The circumstantial evidence in this case has a hell of a lot to do with indirect witness testimony, human behavior, and motive. Co-workers and friends of Lisa Dykes testified that after Lisa met Charles Beltran, she became obsessed with him, completely changed everything about herself, and as time passed, she got more and more jealous of the women he brought around, to include her wife, Nina Murano. Lisa's longtime hairdresser, Kat, was called to the stand. Kat had been doing Lisa's hair since early 2016, years before Dykes began her relationship with Beltran. What she had to say was compelling, and of course it was, because nobody knows you like your hairdresser. There's something about sitting in that chair that turns highlights and a trim into some sort of womanhood confessional, and a good hairdresser is like an elephant. They never forget. Kat was a damn good hairdresser. Dykes had sat there in her chair and spilled the beans on her relationship with Beltran and later Nina. And Kat hadn't forgot a single thing. She told the jury that when Lisa had first started coming to her, she had long hair and just wanted simple highlights. She dressed conservatively and presented herself as a professional paralegal she was. She was nice and they mostly chit-chatted about Lisa's children, who were grown at this point. Kat knew all their names, their jobs, and where they lived. She even remembered Lisa Dyke's daughter's dog, and that Lisa had a brother who lived in Florida. I told you she was good. Kat went on to say that in about 2018-ish, everything began to change. Lisa Dykes came in for an appointment one morning and told her that she had met a guy named Chuck. Lisa laughed as she told her that he was her boy toy. At first, Kat thought nothing of it, but Lisa kept talking about him, so eventually she had to ask what the deal with Chuck was. Lisa told her that Chuck was a lot younger and worked with her son. She talked excitedly about him and Kat could tell that she was really into him. Around that time, she cut her long hair into a pompadour, which is the hairstyle where you shave the sides and leave the top long. Not only did Dyke shave the sides of her head, but she also had Kat bleach it to a platinum blonde. Now there ain't nothing wrong with a funky fresh hairdo, but this was so different that Kat was concerned it could affect Lisa's job. After all, she was a paralegal and had always presented herself in a more toned-down style. And it wasn't just the funky, fresh new cut. Oh no, it didn't stop there. Kat couldn't help but notice that Lisa had a brand new tattoo every time she came in. And Lisa never had tattoos before. Now, not only did she have tattoos, but she sure as shit liked to show them off. Kat testified that once conservative Lisa was now running around in tank tops, regardless of the weather, her new tattoos on full display. And then there was the whole gold teeth thing. One day, Lisa came into the salon wearing gold dots on her teeth. And like, that's cool for Paul Wall or whatever, but for a 57-year-old mom and paralegal, it didn't make sense to Kat. None of it did. I'm not one to judge. Around here, we leave that to Jesus, especially since I myself have several tattoos and my hair has been every color of the rainbow at some point in my life. 
But as long as I've been living, I've been this weird. If I shaved the sides of my head or got a gigantic tattoo, those who know me would be like, yeah, that kind of tracks. But for Lisa Dykes, this was so out of character. And so was what happened next. Kat told the jury that one day Lisa brought her daughter Chelsea to the appointment. The mother and daughter broke the news to Kat that Chelsea was moving out of Lisa's house. This caught Kat by surprise. Lisa and Chelsea had always seemed so close. So she asked, why the sudden move? According to Kat, Lisa responded, I'm going to live the life that I want to live and I can't do that with her here. Lisa's brother Jimmy, who lived with her at that time, also recalled on the stand that around August of 2019, Lisa told him, Chelsea, and Lisa's son Aaron, who was also living at the house at that time, that they had to get out. It was sudden and unexpected. Back to Kat. A few appointments after that one with Lisa and Chelsea, Lisa told her that Chuck was moving in. Soon after that, she learned that Lisa was buying equipment so he could set up a studio in her house to continue his rap career or whatever you want to call it. Around October of 2019, Lisa began talking about someone else at her appointments. And that someone else was Nina Murano. For a while there, all Lisa talked about was Nina, and by December, she told Kat all about how Nina's much older husband had died, and eventually Lisa divulged that she and Nina were a couple. According to Kat, when she questioned Lisa about it, stating, but you're not into women, Lisa responded, yeah, but she can give me everything I want. Kat pressed further, what about Chuck? Lisa told her that Chuck wasn't going anywhere. Fast forward to the spring of 2020 and the shutdowns during the pandemic. Kat came over to Lisa's home to do her hair. This was her second time at the house and second time meeting Chuck. Beltran was there doing his own thing. Lisa asked Kat if she wanted to see her wedding dress. She went to the closet and came out holding two black dresses. As Lisa walked out of the closet, Kat caught a glimpse of an altar with a statue that looked like a grim reaper asked Lisa if she was into witchcraft, and Lisa responded, Well, I dabble in it. Put a pin in that, cause the Grim Reaper thing is gonna come up again. After the lockdown restrictions loosened, Lisa was once again regularly coming to the salon. She started telling Kat about all the new stuff her wife Nina was buying for her. Nina had bought her her dream car, which was a Maserati. In June of 2020, Lisa brought Nina into the appointment with her. According to Kat, Nina was quiet and introverted, but Lisa was running her mouth as she always did, and she told Kat that her new wife was paying for her to get plastic surgery. A little nip and a tuck. Lisa was planning to get a lower facelift as well as a thigh lift, and it seemed Nina was happy to foot the bill. Everything seemed to be going well with the Chuck-Nina-Lisa deal, especially for Chuck. Nina was spending her money on Lisa, and Lisa was swiping her card on whatever Chuck needed. And Chuck? Well, he was making low-budget music videos and partying it up in Debellum. Things were peachy keen until they weren't. Kat recalled that during one conversation, when Lisa spoke about Nina, she had a disgusted look on her face when she told her that Nina was coming to town. Lisa went on to tell Kat that Nina's visit meant she was going to have to sleep with her. And Lisa did not want to have sex with Nina. But she didn't want Chuck to either. A few appointments later, Lisa came in visibly upset. She told Kat that she had caught Chuck and Nina in bed together. Kat was confused because weren't they a threesome? Apparently not, because while Lisa didn't mention being mad at Chuck, she was furious with Nina. 
According to Kat, she kept saying, I could just kill her. Obviously, she didn't because Nina Murano is very much alive and she needed to keep her that way since the plastic surgery she was paying for was coming up. Lisa Dyke's last appointment with Kat was on October 10, 2020. This was after Lisa's surgery and Maricela's murder. At this appointment, Lisa talked about her surgery and she had her platinum blonde hair dyed a bright pink color. This was the last time Kat saw Lisa Dykes, but it wasn't actually her last appointment. She had scheduled one for the 10th of December, but she was a no-show. Lisa had never missed an appointment before, so that wasn't like her. But Kat wasn't surprised because by this point she had seen the articles about Maricela and knew that Chuck was a suspect. Of course, by that time, Lisa, Nina, and Chuck were all on the run. Lisa Dykes had dyed her hair pink, abruptly left her job, and took off. Her co-worker Olivia took the stand to tell the jury all about the last time she worked with Dykes at Montgomery Law Firm, which was a personal injury firm. Olivia and Dykes both worked in negotiations. And as we all know, to be a negotiator, you gotta be tough, convincing, knowledgeable, and know how to stand your ground. And that's just how Olivia described Lisa, which is important because when Lisa took the stand, well, you'll see or hear later. Anyhow, Olivia said that Lisa had a commanding presence, good verbal skills, and was very knowledgeable when it came to legal matters. She went on to say, and I quote, Lisa had a way with words. She could persuade anyone to do anything in all honesty. The two shared an office, and Olivia knew all about Lisa's relationship with Beltran. From what Olivia understood, Lisa was his sugar mama. She was in love with him. It was evident in the way she talked about him, and she talked about him all the time. And to Olivia, it seemed she loved buying things for him. They were a couple, but they were a couple in an open relationship. Lisa was far from the only woman in Beltran's life, and Lisa knew that. According to Olivia, it never seemed to be an issue that Charles slept with other women. Well, other women besides one. There was one woman Beltran was not allowed to sleep with without Lisa present, and that was Nina. Lisa had told Olivia all about Nina, and when they married, there was a celebration at the office. But when it came to Nina, all Lisa talked about was her finances and how well off she was. There was none of that lovey-dovey stuff like when she talked about Beltran. She never told Olivia that she was in love with her or anything like that. Olivia got the impression that Lisa's marriage to Nina was more of a financial opportunity. And as far as the physical aspect of the relationship went, Lisa wasn't interested in having sex with Nina, only Beltran. But Nina was into having sex with both of them. Apparently, whether it was at the same time or separately, it didn't matter. Olivia, like Kat, recalled a time when Lisa was angry with Nina because she had slept with Charles without her. Olivia said that Lisa was livid, and she stated she was going to make Nina her bitch. We're going to fast forward again to the 1st of October, 2020. Lisa told Olivia about a concert in Camden, Arkansas that Beltran was going to be performing at. Lisa had plans to go, so she took off work that Friday, October 2nd. She was scheduled to be back at work on Monday, October 5th, otherwise known as the day Maricela Bateo went missing. But according to Olivia, she called in that Monday with no explanation as to why she was missing work. She returned the next day on the 6th and never mentioned a reason. 
she just went back to work as usual. The next few days were uneventful, but sometime soon after she returned, she asked Olivia if she could leave the black Audi she had bought for Charles at her house. At some point, she mentioned having the car detailed twice and talked about leaving it at the airport. She told Olivia the reason for leaving the car was because she was trying to take it away from Beltran. But Olivia didn't want to get caught up in that drama, so she refused. It's a good thing she did because the next thing she knew, Lisa was getting calls from the FBI. On October 15, 2020, Olivia recalled Lisa getting a phone call from an FBI agent, but she told her that it was fraudulent. As we know, of course it wasn't. Olivia testified that though Lisa said it was fraudulent, she seemed upset after the call. The next day, that brings us to October 16th, was the last time Olivia saw Lisa Dykes. It was a Friday and Lisa worked as usual. She had no clue that it was her last day of work and only learned that Lisa had resigned when she came back to work on Monday. Lisa Dykes called in, quit her job, and turned in her resignation letter. It seems sudden, unexpected, and strange. It is strange, right? Why would a woman with a successful career at a law firm just up and leave without so much as a see you later, especially to a co-worker that you were friends with? And Olivia certainly considered Lisa Dykes as a friend. Towards the end of her testimony, she revealed that she didn't want anything to do with testifying at the trial. She stated, I was conflicted. She was my friend, but is being charged with something horrible. It's nothing that feels good. It's hard to deal with. While Lisa Dykes abruptly quit her high-paying job, her wife Nina Murano desperately tried to sell her house in Pennsylvania. Murano's neighbor, Jamie Scarpa, who just so happened to be a realtor, took the stand to tell the jury all about it. She started off by testifying that prior to Nina's husband, Bill's death, she had noticed Bill sleeping in his car on the road behind the house on several occasions. It was odd, so she asked him about it and Bill told her that he and Nina were fighting because he thought Nina was cheating on him. She also said she didn't find out about Bill's death until March of 2020 which was strange since he had died in November of 2019. She knew the Muranos pretty well and had watched over their house, cats, and packages while they traveled. She would have thought Nina would have told her, but she would have thought wrong. Here's where it gets a little confusing. The house in Pennsylvania was in the neighborhood Nina had grown up in. She and Bill had another house in New York, and from what I gather, they traveled back and forth. At the time of his death, Bill was in New York and the house in New York was already listed for sale. Anyhow, Jamie didn't understand why Nina Murano never told her that Bill had passed away. Nina had always called her when she needed anything. Case in point, the week of October 12, 2020. Nina called and told her that she needed to sell her house and it sounded like it was urgent. Jamie told her that she couldn't list it that day, she needed the keys to take photos and all of the things. But Nina was out of town, so Jamie told her they could list it as soon as she got back. A few weeks later, on November 1st, Nina called again and told her that she had a car that was being delivered, and she needed her to cover it. The next day, a black Audi was delivered to Nina's house, and just as Nina told her it would be, there was a cover for the car on the passenger seat, so Jamie covered the car. A little over a week after that, Nina came back to Pennsylvania and brought Lisa Dykes with her. They set up a meeting with Jamie to go over the listing contract, and Jamie went over to Nina's to go over the paperwork. From the moment Jamie walked into the house, things were strange. She had been in the house before, and it had always been light and airy. 
but this time there were black sheets covering all the windows. It was pitch black inside. The three of them sat down at the dining room table to go over the contract. There was a recording device in the middle of the table and Lisa and Nina were recording the conversation. Why? Who knows? And Jamie didn't ask. But it was definitely odd. People don't normally record when they speak to their realtor, but Jamie came there to do a job, so she did it. After they were done going over things, they went to tour the house. It started out normal enough until they got to the closet next to the foyer. Inside the closet, there was a life-size skeleton wearing a robe with folded hands and a mat lying in front of it. When Dykes and Murano walked by the statue, they both knelt down. This terrified Jamie. She had never seen anything like that before. Dykes and Murano made it clear that potential buyers were not to go into that closet. With the contract signed, Jamie got the hell out of there. Once the house was listed, offers began to come in. When they had their meeting, Nina told Jamie that she wasn't going to take a penny less than $310,000. So when an offer for two eighty five dollars came in, Nina turned it down. But she called Jamie back that same very day and told her that after talking to Lisa, they wanted to take the offer. They came and signed the paperwork and said they were leaving town again. A few weeks later, Jamie received a text from a buyer's agent stating that a buyer had seen something inside the house that concerned them. The agent sent a photo of a Grim Reaper statue on a table with candles and cups of alcohol and money all around it. Needless to say, that buyer didn't end up purchasing the house. Jamie decided to do a little research and learned that the statue was actually a statue of Santa Muerte. I did a little research myself and learned that Santa Muerte originated from a blend of Spanish and indigenous Mexican beliefs about death, influenced by concepts from the Aztec and Maya cultures, as well as Spanish ideas of the Grim Reaper. Over time, she became a hybrid figure known as Holy Death. Santa Muerte is a folk saint whose worshippers mostly include people on the fringes of society, such as drug traffickers and criminals or marginalized groups. In Mexico, she is real popular with the cartels. It is believed that Santa Muerte is followed by these groups of people because she doesn't judge them or their requests. Like you're not going to ask St. Michael to make sure your delivery of drugs comes in on time, but apparently you could ask Santa Muerte. Despite the name, the folk saint is not recognized by the Catholic Church, and in fact, senior Vatican officials have condemned the worship of her as blasphemous. In recent years, the worship of the folk saint is growing, but it isn't the first time worship of Santa Muerte has surged in popularity. Interestingly enough, between 1940 and 1980, there was a drastic rise in worship among women practicing love magic who thought their husbands or boyfriends were cheating on them. Kinda sounds like somebody we know, right? Anyhow, worshippers of the folk saint often have personal altars dedicated to her and perform rituals involving prayers, candles, and offerings. The offerings range from roses and food to money, alcohol, cigars, drugs, and according to the FBI, the heads of victims and presumably their souls. I just read that last line straight out of a law enforcement FBI bulletin. And speaking of government agencies, the DEA, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Mexican government all actively oppose the worship of Santa Muerte. 
The Mexican government actually considers Santa Muerte as an enemy of the state. I don't know if Jamie the Realtor was as disturbed as I am after her research, but let's get back to her testimony. Jamie didn't see much of Lisa and Nina over the next few months, but in early January of 2021, the house sold for $285,000. By January 14th, Nina was packing up the house to move out. That night, she called Jamie to say thank you and goodbye and basically told her that she'd never see her again. A little over a week later, Jamie noticed police cars at Nina's house. She called Nina and asked if she wanted her to go over and see why they were there, but Nina said no. That didn't matter, though, because while Jamie was still on the phone with Nina, officers walked over to talk to her. She hung up and spoke with Detective Ramirez. All the detective told her was that they were looking for a missing person. After they were finished talking, Jamie took a photo of Ramirez's card and sent it to Nina. Nina told her that it was all a big misunderstanding and that she'd get in touch with the detective. Two days later, on January 27th, Nina called back and seemed frantic. She wanted to know exactly what police had asked and what Jamie had told them. She told Nina that she hadn't told them anything because she didn't know anything. After a few more delays, the house was finally sold in the spring of 2021. Lisa and Nina's friends and neighbors weren't the only ones to testify. Charles Beltran's friends and girlfriends and ex-girlfriends did too. And they all seemed to know about Lisa and Beltran's relationship. As proud as Lisa was discussing her boy toy, Beltran wasn't quite as enthusiastic. While he told the women he fooled around with that Dykes and Murano were his lawyers, his homeboys, they knew the truth. And they held nothing back as they took the stand to tell it. His friend Dax was up first. Daxon Stevens, better known as Dax, was originally from Camden, Arkansas. He'd moved to Texas in about 2002. Between 2015 and 16, he began working at the on-premise bar. That's where he met Lisa Dykes through her son, Kyle. He met her somewhere around 2017 or 18, and he described her as, quote, a nice lady, like a mom. Dax had a friend named Freddie. On several different occasions, Lisa tried to get Dax and Freddie to come hang out with her. They didn't, but eventually, they became friends with Charles Beltran. Dax met Beltran the same way he had met Lisa, at on-premise where Beltran began working security. After Lisa and Beltran became a thing, Beltran told Dax about their relationship, and the way Chuck described it was that Lisa was his sugar mama. However, the new sugar mama deal didn't stop him from flirting with other women, which he did all the time. According to Dax, Beltran was quite the ladies' man, and even at work, he was often focused on talking to women. On October 2, 2020, Beltran, Dykes, Murano, Dax, Freddie, and a couple other guys all took that trip to Camden for the show. The men all rode in a van Lisa Dykes had rented. Lisa followed behind them with Nina in another vehicle. When they got there, Lisa had booked several hotel rooms, a couple for the guys and a suite for herself and Nina. Dax had family in the area, so he stayed with them, but he was at the show that next day on the 3rd. Beltran was going to be performing two songs, one by himself and one with Freddie. But this wasn't a situation where Beltran had been invited out by a venue to perform. Dax had a connection with one of the other performers and found out that they needed a few more artists. So Beltran, or should I say Lisa Dykes, paid $350 to secure his spot in the show. And well, 
things didn't go quite as planned. How'd the show go? Um, from one to ten, it was about six. How was Chuck's part of the show? About three. I'll be honest. Yeah. And let me ask you this too, right? So Chuck's not the headliner, obviously. That's not what people are there to see. Correct. There was a, a bigger local artist or regional artist. Region, yes, yes. That's performing there. Yeah. Um, is it something where that that establishment is like reaching out to Chuck, saying, "Hey, you come perform," or did you guys have to coordinate <clears throat> for the slot? The second guy was the opener. And I guess they was looking for like a, they had a slot for another artist or whatever. The second guy is one of my good friends too. And um, it just got set up where Chuck him had the slot. I think it was like two to three hundred bucks for the slot. Chuck had to pay for the slot? Yes, yes. Um, so it's not, it, it wasn't a case of anyone was interested in recruiting Chuck to come perform, it was uh, you made a connection to get him on the stage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at this time, he had maybe a song or two out, I think. Yes. And then him and Freddie had a song as well. Together, yes. Okay. You don't perform with him or rap with him or anything like that? No, I ain't a rapper. Okay. Um, but you had some of those connections and they were your friends and yeah, yeah, work yeah. with us. The audience, as you said, you know, Chuck's was about three, so it sounds like uh, the audience wasn't uh, too into Chuck's performance. Correct. Okay. Uh, did you get some booze? Yeah, I heard a few of those. Okay, so some booze and chuckling, probably. Yeah. And then uh, things turn around when Freddie gets on the stage? Yeah, that was song number two. Okay. Yes. So when, when, Dax and Fre or when Freddie and Chuck do a song together... Yeah, I heard people like, okay, okay. okay what like, did they Oh, my bad. Just make sure, let me finish the question <coughs> and you answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, Y'all leave Arkansas, or I guess that night. Uh, what do y'all do that night after the show? Went back to the hotel. Did you go back to the hotel and hang out for a little for bit? For a little bit. Okay. Um, but you don't stay? Nah, I went back to my dad. Man, you just can't help but love Dax. You gotta appreciate the honesty. At no point during his testimony did Dax hold back. When asked directly by the prosecutor if it seemed like Chuck's rap career had a real chance of taking off, Dax responded, no sir. And he laughed when he was asked if Chuck and Freddie were the headliners. Dax went on to say that after the performance, they went back to the hotel and everyone was hanging out and drinking and having a good time, to include Lisa Dykes. This was important because the defense was going to go to great lengths to make a point that Lisa could barely walk as she was recovering from her plastic surgery, insinuating that she wouldn't have been able to physically attack Maricela. And had Maricela been awake and alert, that likely would have been true. Maricela would have been able to defend herself. But according to the prosecution, Maricela was asleep, and according to everyone around Lisa at that time, she wasn't quite as injured as she was making out to be. And instead, she was out partying. Dax and later Freddie and Beltran all testified that Lisa was actually the one driving, following behind the van four hours to Camden and four hours back. On Sunday, which would have been the fourth, they all made it back to Mesquite. Dax and Freddie caught an Uber and left Lisa Dyke's house at about 7 p.m. 
A few hours later, around midnight, Beltran picked Dax up and they headed to Deep Ellum. They went into a bar called Punk Society and had a drink or two. They were there for about 10 to 15 minutes when Beltran's baby mama walked into the bar. Not wanting to get caught in an argument, they snuck out the back door of the bar and walked across the street near Dada's, which is another bar. They were standing outside talking when Beltran said to Dax, Look at that girl. The girl was Maricela Bateo. Maricela made eye contact and then came up and talked to them. Dax recalled that it seemed like she and Beltran hit it off, and they stood there chatting for about five minutes, and though he couldn't hear everything that was being said, judging by their body language, it looked like they were flirting. This was something he had seen Beltran do probably a million times before. A few moments later, Beltran told him that he was leaving and he walked away with Maricela. At that point, it was close to 1 a.m. Later on, Dax tried to call Beltran to get a ride home, but he didn't answer. He lived close, so he walked home. The next day, he saw Chuck at about noon when he came over to his house. He asked about the girl he had met and Beltran told him that they fooled around in the car, got some mixers, had some drinks, and he had dropped her off by Baylor. Dax testified that he believed him because that was just what Beltran did. Over the next several days, Dax saw Beltran every day. At his house in Deep Ellum, they went to the strip club, and Beltran continued being Beltran, hitting on women and partying. The only thing that was different was that Beltran wasn't driving his black Audi, but Lisa's white SUV. After about a week, detectives began coming around on-premise bar asking questions. Dax told them what he knew, and once he saw Maricela's photo on the missing flyer, he recognized her immediately. He called Beltran and told him that detectives were looking for him, and that was the last time he heard from his friend Chuck. And with that, Dax's testimony was over, and Frederick Chapman was up next on the stand. Frederick Chapman, better known as Freddy, was from Dallas, Texas. He was a party promoter, rapper, entrepreneur, and back in 2020, he worked as a concierge at Manor House, which was where Dax lived. Freddie knew Dax, and Dax is how he met Charles Beltran. He and Beltran got along well, because according to Freddie, they were both into the same things, women, music, and dressing up. Freddie also knew Lisa and the relationship between Lisa and Beltran. But maybe Beltran wasn't the first gigolo Lisa had her eyes on. Do people still say gigolo? Is that still a thing? Anyhow, Freddie testified that before Lisa got with Charles Beltran, she had been very flirtatious with him. He recalled that one time at a Halloween party, Dax had called him and told him Lisa wanted to see him. He showed up and Lisa made advances towards him. And he played it cool, but wasn't interested in the slightest. And what do you know, a few weeks later, he saw Lisa, Nina, Chuck, and Dax. At this point, Charles Beltran had a brand new car. Dax teased him about it and said, Hey man, that was supposed to be your Audi. Freddie testified that on that night, he saw Beltran kiss both Lisa and Nina. As the relationship progressed, there weren't many more public displays of affection. But it was understood that Lisa was Beltran's sugar mama, and it was something Freddie and Beltran's other friends often joked about. Like when they were in Camden for the show, the guys were all hanging out when Nina walked up with a room key and a note and handed it to Beltran. Beltran headed to Lisa and Nina's suite, and Dax and Freddie told Beltran to go pay for the trip. And Beltran did. At least he went up to the suite with Nina and Lisa for a while. When they got back from Camden, Freddie went home and went to bed. 
he didn't go out with Dax and Beltran. But he did see them the next day, and Dax brought up the girl that Beltran had met that night. According to Freddie, Dax said, guess where he, he being Beltran, met a girl from. They told him she was from Seattle, and Beltran told him the same story he told Dax. They messed around in the car, got mixers, and he dropped her off in Debellum. Freddie saw Beltran over the next few days, and he told the same story Dax did, that Beltran switched cars and was driving the white SUV. He testified that after a week, he learned that a girl from Seattle had gone missing in Deep Ellum, and Dax told him that was the girl he and Beltran had met that night. But when Freddie asked Beltran, he said it wasn't her. And that was the last time he heard from his friend. Several of Beltran's ex-girlfriends also testified, and they all kind of said the same thing. Beltran never remained faithful, and he was far more interested in partying, making music, and hanging out with other women and his friends. It gets redundant, but there were two things about their testimony that stood out. They all basically said Beltran had a history of running from his problems, and none of them accused him of getting physical with them. He had never been aggressive, just more of a player. And at that point, it was time for Charles Beltran to take the stand. But unfortunately, that will have to wait until next week because we are out of time. Be sure to join me next week, same time, same place, for the conclusion of Maricela's case. For real this time. And please, don't hate me forever. I tried everything possible to wrap up this week, but I just can't make it all fit. I'm sorry, I still love you. If you still love me and you've got a free second, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review. But only if you're not mad. If you're mad, maybe, like, wait a week. As always, you can find me on Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. And if you're sick of ad interruptions, I've got good news for you. You can get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.